And I'm going to read from the first verse, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you have a long memory and you can remember back some six weeks uh, to the last time we were here in Romans, you'll remember that we were looking at verse 5 where it speaks about our experience of God's love. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So Paul has said that, that it's, uh, there are think, conclusions that we need to draw. He begins the chapter speaking about Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, this, this, and this, he draws some conclusions out of our relationship with God. And then he says, but it's not all about conclusions that we draw. There is an experience. God pours out his love into our hearts. And then in verses 6 through to 8, he goes on to say more about the quality of that love, to explain it and to expound it. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning and it's uh, been a fascinating morning, really, because through our worship time and the songs we've been singing, the contributions that people have been uh, bringing, uh, really all that I want to say has already been preached, but that's not going to stop me saying it. But uh, really, God clearly wants to bring those things through to us. He wants us to know this morning a whole lot more about his love, why it is great love, why it's love worth singing about, and so on. In verse 5, he speaks about an experience of God's love. Then he moves on to look at the evidence for that love, and that's what we're going to look at. But just to say, this word love can just seem kind of sentimental, it could be that the men here are thinking, oh, this is just so girly, love. It's kind of soppy or superficial. Well, it's talking here about something that is the opposite of that. It's talking here about something that is very strong, very wonderful. And we mustn't reduce it to just kind of liking or really liking or something kind of just sentimental. There's something majestic that Paul is speaking about here and that's what we need to get hold of. And he says God has demonstrated his love. When something is demonstrated, so you imagine that you've just bought something new and you're wondering how do you use it, how does it work, then maybe it will be demonstrated to you. Now, it's vitally important that you watch the demonstration. It's vitally important that you watch carefully and listen carefully to what is being said so that you know how to use this thing. 
Well, God has demonstrated his love. It's even more important that we look carefully, that we watch carefully, that we listen carefully to see, well, what is it that is being demonstrated before our very eyes? Well, in order to understand it, you will see in verses 6 through to 8 that that those verses not only speak about God's love, they also say rather a lot about us. And so to understand God's love, we need, first of all, to understand some facts about ourselves. And Paul sets them out in those verses. If we're going to grasp why God's love is spoken about in such an enthusiastic way and with such amazement, we do need to grasp where we're at, who we are. And so let's see what he says. He says in verse 6, at just the right time, when we were still powerless. That's the first fact. Powerless. It's a word that means helpless, sickly, weak. It's a word that Jesus used uh, when he came upon his disciples in, read about it in Matthew 26. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows what lies ahead for him, that he's about to be arrested and cruelly killed. He knows that. He's asked his disciples to pray with him. He comes back to them, and they've fallen asleep. And in Matthew 26, verse 41, he says, The spirit is willing, but the body is weak, helpless, powerless, sickly. That's who we are. When it comes to keeping promises, we're powerless. I wonder how many of us, if we were really honest, could admit there are times, maybe many times, where we've made sincere promises to God. Maybe at the end of hearing someone preach, we've felt stirred and we, we make a commitment. And we have to admit, we're weak. We make those promises and we really mean it. And then a month later, we remember what we promised. And we think, oh no. Powerless weak, sickly. That's what it means. Helpless when it comes to making significant change in our lives. Of course, we can make some changes. Of course, by sheer willpower, we can change some things. But in terms of being right with God, in terms of being good enough for God, we are powerless. And it says that at just the right time when we were still powerless... In our own experience, we can say it was at the right time God came to us. But maybe it's also meaning historically, God had given his people his law. There were the commandments. There were his requirements set out for them. This is how God wants us to live. And he gave us time. He gave humanity time to get to grips with his requirements, to get to grips with his law. But helpless, powerless. Did God's law make people holy? No. God's law tended to make people rebels or hypocrites, but certainly not holy. Maybe looking good on the outside, but not on the inside. And then, of course, years of of Greek civilization at the time when Paul is writing this had education, had culture, made people good enough for God. No. Even with all those benefits, still helpless, still powerless. That's who we are. 
And then it goes on in that verse, verse 6, there's another very unflattering adjective. Christ died for the ungodly. Unlike God. Unlike God in just about every way. No reverence for God. Rebellion against God. Resentment even about God. But certainly not like him. Ungodly. That's a description. Powerless. Ungodly. And then in verse 8, another word is used. Why we were still sinners. That's the title that the Bible gives us. Now, imagine you're talking to someone and you're, you're just getting to know them and you say, oh, what do you do? And they might say, uh, I'm a teacher or I'm a doctor. They'll, they'll refer to their job. That's what they do all day. That, that's their title, as it were. That describes them. Well, there's the description that we all actually ought to say, but of course you're not going to slip that into conversation. What, what do you do? I'm a sinner. But that's, that's what we habitually do. That's the description. We consistently fall short of God's standards. Everyone has sinned. It tells us back in chapter 3. All have fallen short of God's glory. That's what we habitually do. That's our occupation. That's the title. Sinners. And then in verse 10, just beyond the verses that we're looking at, it says, when we were God's enemies. There's God, and on the opposite side, there's us. Opposing God. Not wanting to be like him, but opposing him consistently. The opposite of God, and hence, earning his opposition to us. It wasn't a one-sided opposition. We were hostile to God, but then that earned God's anger against our sheer rebellion. It says back in chapter 1, do you remember at the start point of this letter, in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness or ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So we, we are opposing God and God is against us. That's our condition. That's who we are. And that's everyone. And we need to understand that in terms of, of where God is at, our condition is disgusting to him. It is vile. And the vileness of our sin means that you know, degrees of sinfulness are kind of irrelevant. It's a bit like when you look down from a great height, maybe from uh, an aircraft, you look down and really, if you, if you could just about see two people, if one was standing ten foot above the other, it wouldn't make a huge amount of difference. And in terms of God's holiness and our condition, degrees of sin don't really enter into it, which means that no one is too bad for God's grace. We are all in the same predicament that's it. And if we're to understand the love of God, this seems to be what Paul is saying here, we've got to admit the truth about ourselves. We've got to admit guilty as charged. That's our condition. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. It's not flattering, and human pride would always want to say, oh, I'm not as bad as that. 
Yeah, but in terms of who God is, are we like him? No. No, this is, this is our condition. And so back in chapter 3, do you remember, Paul has set it out in verses 10 onwards. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and so on. That is humanity. So that's the fact about us. Now let's look elsewhere. Some facts about God. Well, what we know about God is that he is totally unlike us. God is holy. Back in Isaiah, and again in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, identical words. In Isaiah chapter 6, you read of the prophet Isaiah having an awesome encounter with God. And he says, I I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. Mysterious figures, we don't know what they were, but each with six wings. With two wings they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, with two they're flying. And they're calling to one another, and these are the key words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Here are these strange, heavenly creatures in the presence of God. They're not human beings, they're heavenly creatures, but in the presence of a holy God, it says, they cover their faces. That's how holy God is. That's how awesome God is, that even these creatures habitually in his presence cover their faces when they're before him. In the book of Revelation, the same words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty in Revelation 4. And there you read of those in his presence who fall down before him. God is holy. We can't even begin to imagine what that means. But one thing it does mean is that he hates sin. Because he is holy, sin is abhorrent to him. Sin is disgusting to him. Sin can't be contemplated by God. Can't tolerate it. He's holy. One of the Old Testament prophets, uh, the prophet Habakkuk, says in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate, you cannot tolerate wrong. God's holiness. And he lives in unblemished purity. And so sin must instantly be banished from where he is. That was what happened right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We might say in quite a small way, they just took some forbidden fruit. But yes, they had rebelled against God. God comes and they're banished from his presence. Have you ever heard the kind of jokey, flippant comment when people say they're looking around wondering what church to join And the comment is often made, well, if you do ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll spoil it. Now, a flippant comment because obviously there's no such thing as a perfect church, but you know the point that's being made. Well, of course, there isn't such a thing as a perfect church, but there is a perfect heaven. There is a perfect God. Can you imagine an ordinary human being outside of the grace of God, salvation in Christ, an ordinary human being finding themselves in heaven. Just imagine yourself as that person. Okay, you're a Christian, but imagine you're not. You're an ordinary human being. Imagine yourself 
suddenly in heaven. A place of unblemished purity. Something that we can't even begin to imagine. But there you are. And there are all these pure, sinless creatures around. And as you come by, you hear what they're saying. Things like, can you smell something? What's that? Or, I sense something that I don't like. What is it? And you realize that everyone is suddenly uncomfortable and they're looking at you. You have brought something unpleasant into this holiness. God is too pure to have sin in his presence. Sin is disgusting. We, we couldn't be in God's presence. When Adam and Eve sinned, vanish. They can't stay there. It's horrible. Sin in the presence of God. That's who we are. Paul is set, setting the scene here. We were powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. But God is holy. His final judgment to some will be, depart from me because of sin. That sets the scene for what Paul wants to say here. And what he's talking about here is incomprehensible love. That God should love us is a marvel of stupendous enormity. There aren't words to express. It's absolutely amazing. We won't be amazed unless we, we admit the charge of what the Bible says about us. And as we admit who God is, who we are. It's only when we see both of those facts that we, we grasp something. How amazing it is that this God who cannot tolerate sin can yet love us. And that's the point he is making. Now, Paul is making the point here that this, this, is, this is totally contrary to anything we would expect. He says in verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. He seems to be drawing a distinction there between a righteous man and a good man. What's he talking about? Well, one way of understanding it is this. A righteous man would be someone who keeps the rules, someone who obeys the law, someone who is very careful not to put a foot wrong. Then a good man seems to be something more than that. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, no, for a good man. What's a good man then? Well, someone who's not only not putting a foot wrong, but someone who is genuine, someone whose heart is in us. The late great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in speaking about this verse, uses, uh, uh, to illustrate this, speaks of a musician who may be doesn't play a wrong note. And in that sense, they're good. They, they, they get every note right, and the timing is peccable. And he says you can contrast that then with a great musician. Well, it's not just that they don't play a wrong note. It's just there's, there's heart in it. There's, it's, it seems to be coming from their very being. That may or may not make sense to you, but there's a righteous man, someone who... Well, they obey the rules. A good one. Someone who's genuine. Someone who goes the extra mile. Someone who turns the other cheek. It's kind of in their heart. Well, what Paul is saying is, very rarely will someone die for a righteous man. 
go for a truly good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for this. We were sinners. We weren't good. We weren't even righteous. We were God's enemies. And this is how God shows his love. Neither good nor righteous, but sinners. And then this stark fact, Christ died for the ungodly. In just one, two, three, four, five words, Paul expresses an amazing truth. Christ died for the ungodly. Volumes could be written about that. He says it in five words. This is the amazing but stark statement. Christ, the Son of God, this God who is too holy to contemplate sin, who would say to the sinner, depart from me. Yet, God, in the person of his Son, died for the ungodly. An act of incredible bravery, incredible courage, because the way that we could come into God's love was through the Son of God suffering God's holy disgust at sin, God's holy wrath against sin, the Son of God suffering that as a substitute in our place so that we need never know it. Christ died for the ungodly. Referred to when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks his disciples to pray with him and they fall asleep and he says the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, it's powerless, it's sickly. But he, he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because he knows what's ahead. He is about to be punished for sin when he has never sinned. He hates sin. He has kept himself pure from this foul rebellion against the Heavenly Father that he loves. He's always lived a holy life, and yet now he's suddenly going to be treated as if he had sinned all his life. As if this is the apt description, sinner. He's pure. Now he's going to become a sinner, and he's going to suffer what sins deserve. He knows what's ahead. And did he shy away from that? Did he opt out at the last minute? He could have done. But an act of incredible courage, incredible bravery, he pressed through the unimaginable in order to say, Christ died for the ungodly. Five little words expressing something totally amazing. But who is he going to save? Every so often in a war situation, sadly, obviously our troops are fighting overseas at this time and you hear of acts of great bravery. Every so often you hear of uh, awards being given, a military cross, even maybe a VC. And what you hear about is this bravery under fire. And maybe the, the hero is interviewed and he says, well, I couldn't leave my mates there. And it's someone who saves one of his, one of his, his group and they're, they're in trouble. He goes through under fire and he rescues them and quite rightly gets an award. Jesus didn't do this for his mates. He did it for his enemies. He did it for those who hated him. That was us. Ungodly. Enemies of God. 
That was us. Jesus did it for us. He pressed through bravery under fire. The cross, the wrath of God against sin. He suffered it, not for his friends, but for his enemies. That was us. Ungrateful, hating God, and he went through to save. God demonstrates his love. It's a very long word. This word demonstrate is another popular version that it just uses the word show, which is pathetic. God demonstrates. It's a word that means proving something. It's a word that means showing its nature, showing what it's like. God shows what his love is like in this. While we were still sinners, rebels against God, hating God, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration that makes it impossible to ever doubt again. It's like God says, look, this is my love. And he opens it out in front of us. Here's the demonstration. Christ died for us. You see, in verse 5, he speaks about an experience. God pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, but feelings can come and go. We can be a bit under the weather. Things can maybe be going wrong in our lives, and our feelings can play tricks on us. We say, I don't feel love. Well, God has demonstrated it. Here's the facts. He's opened it out. He says, look at this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is clearly profoundly moved as he's saying that because he knows his background. He knows how he hated, literally hated the name of Jesus Christ. How he had determined he was going to have nothing to do with him. In fact, he wanted to wipe out the name of Jesus. That was Paul. And he discovered Christ, this Christ that he hated, died for him. He's, he's bowled over by it. But... They'll say degrees of sinfulness. No, that's irrelevant. We can say, Paul, the chief of sinners, yeah, but then all have sinned. We're all in the same position. And this is the love of God. God demonstrates it. He shows its nature to us. It's a unilateral love. There was nothing good in us. We were enemies of God. And it's all about him. You know, there are some people who pervert this whole thing and say, the fact that Jesus died for me shows how lovable I must be. No, it doesn't. We were enemies of God. We hated God. We were still sinners. It's a unilateral. It's a one-sided love. It's all about him. It's not about us. It says in chapter 7 and verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what's good. I can't carry it out. I'm helpless. I'm weak. There's nothing good in me. But Christ died for me. It's a one-sided love. It's demonstrated. And it's a united love. Just notice what it says here. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ, the Son of God, died for us. God demonstrates his love for us in his Son dying for us. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit pours out his love into our hearts. It's a, the, the whole Godhead is involved in this, in this demonstration of love. And it is unique. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, 
Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, but God, (laughs) this is different. God is different from anyone else. And his love is unlike any other love. It is not superficial. It is not sentimental. It's strong. It's incredibly unique. No one else, no one else could ever do this. God has demonstrated his love. And having opened out his love as if he said, now come, look at this. Look at this. Christ died for the ungodly. Look at it. Then it's convincing. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't deserve it. Which means we can't then undeserve it. Having been loved by God, there is nothing that we can do that can cause that love to be turned away. Because we didn't deserve it in the first place, we can't subsequently lose it. Which is why in chapter 8, Paul just revels in this. And he says at the end of chapter 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'm convinced of this. Why? Because God has demonstrated his unique, unilateral love. Once we're in the love of God, we are always in the love of God. It's love for the totally undeserving. We can't undeserve it anymore. It's God's love for us. So here Paul sets out two equally vital aspects of God's love. There's experience in verse 5. God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Experience, feeling. And then there's evidence. We need both. To hear the evidence but not experience it, that is tragic. And to have feelings but not really know the facts, that is weak. We need both. God wants us to know the, the facts of his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But not just to know intellectually about it, but to come into it. Where that love has melted our hearts, that love is poured out into our hearts, and we know we're in the love of God. And in the love of God, we need to know why we're there. We need to know the facts. And it needs to be our preoccupation. There are so many things that can get our attention as Christians. Many things quite rightly should get our attention. I just think, how different would we be? How different would the church be? How different would we as individuals be if this was our preoccupation? We look at this demonstration. God demonstrates his love. And we say, I'm going to keep looking at this. I'm going to look at this demonstration. You know that hymn we sometimes sing, when I survey the wondrous cross. Has it ever struck you that the word survey is a strange word to use? You survey a landscape. You survey a scene. But a cross, you look at it. Survey? You survey something massive. A cross is just one thing. When I survey the wondrous cross, Oh, the hymn writer knew what he's talking about. What he's saying is, what is happening there? What is happening when Jesus died is a landscape 
It's a scene. It needs to be looked at. It's God demonstrating his love. It's not just a man dying. It's Christ dying for the ungodly. It's the God of glory taking our guilt on himself and punishing. The more you look at it, you think, this is amazing. It takes time to take it in. When I survey the wondrous cross, then my richest gain I count but loss. This love so amazing, so divine demands my soul. We need to survey it. It needs to be our preoccupation. And it seems to me, if we were preoccupied with this scene, Christ died for the ungodly, that would lead to an enthusiasm that we would kind of exude. Now, most of you would know, if you know anything about me, that I'm kind of keen on buses. It sometimes amazes me how often that seems to crop up in conversation. It, it almost seems as if people want to talk with me about buses, but actually what is happening is, I suppose, that I'm a bit of a bore on the subject, and so any conversation can kind of get turned around that way. Uh, just this week, um, uh, there was an elders thing, uh, meeting, regional elders thing in Leeds, and uh, I hadn't been there five minutes when I was talking to one of the other leaders about buses. I, I'm sure he started the conversation, but I guess I must have done. Don't talk to me in the coffee break, that's what I said. <laughs> that kind of enthusiasm comes out. Well, I want to say this. I'm much more enthusiastic about the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm much more enthusiastic about the fact that the Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. And so, it doesn't take much for me to talk about that. I don't have to think, oh, I must try and speak about Jesus. That's ridiculous. I don't think I need to learn some skills about how to... I don't... I, no one ever taught me any skills on how to talk about buses. I just happen to be keen on them, so I talk about them. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I'm thrilled with what Christ has done. I, and when I survey the wondrous cross, when I look at the enormity of God loving someone who is a rebel, God loving someone who, the title of my occupation, sinner, and God loved me, and the Son of God died for me. Well, that, that in that just kind of takes over. And you cannot but talk about him. You can't miss him out of the conversation. It's, if, if the title was sinner, well now it's son of God. And that's me. I don't become a son of God on Sunday and then Monday through to Saturday well I'm just something else. No, I'm a son, I'm a child of God and Talk to me, you're talking to a child of God. Talk to you, I hope someone's talking to a child of God, if that's who you are. They're talking to someone who is a passionate lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And so whatever situation you're in, that's who you are. You don't have to think, oh, I must remember, I must look for an opportunity to say, no, 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 no. You are just one person. And you're loved by God. Loved by God. 
the Son of God loved you while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God has demonstrated his love. Going through a tough time, and you think, does God really love me? Talking to someone just before the meeting, various job interviews, a job hasn't come up yet. He didn't say this. I'm sure he isn't thinking this, but we can think in a situation like that. Does God really love me? Maybe it's one setback after another. Maybe a prayer that didn't get answered. Does God really love me? Hey, look at the demonstration. Turn away from all of that. God's got a demonstration he wants to show you. Look at that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you doubt his love now? Can you doubt it? Can you say, can you just dwell on your feelings? Oh, there's a demonstration. Look at the demonstration. Paul is thrilled with it. He can't stop talking about it. He, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's thrilled with it because he knows the love of God. God wants us to know his love. The evidence, strong evidence and an experience. If you're here this morning and you're hearing the evidence, but you think, I don't know anything about that, please talk with us. We'd love to introduce you to this Jesus because he not only died for us, he rose again. And he's alive right now. And we can know him. And his love is poured out into our hearts. It's, it's facts, but it's also experience.